We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's the True Faith Newcastle United podcast. Alex Hurst here, and today we have a long show, and the theme of this show is fan communication from Newcastle United. Fan communication over the years, currently, and hopefully moving forward under new ownership. So the show has myself and two fellow board members from the Newcastle United Supporters Trust. Please join now if you haven't. Um, and we talk about our experiences dealing with the football club as the trust over the past ter- kind of 12 to 18 months since we came together as a board. Then, very fortunately, uh, some lads in the media, Andrew Musgrove from The Chronicle and Chris Woff from The Athletic, talk about dealing with Newcastle United from their point of view uh, as as journalists and working in the media and also how they feel their roles kind of uh, reflect on, on the wider communication strategy of the club. And finally, joined by Steve Wraith, our director of Newcastle Legends to talk about his involvement in fan communications over the years and also how he feels the club could potentially move forward working with former players, um, hopefully when the takeover happens as well. So my thanks to all of the lads who took part in this and gave up their time to speak to me and therefore to speak to you. Uh, if you like the show, you can do us at True Faith a massive favour by leaving us a five-star review with a comment on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. That really helps. We also are back on Patreon at the minute with three or four extra shows all about Newcastle United every single week for about seven quid a month. Uh, So get involved if you like what we do. I'll stop talking now and start the show. So, lads, thanks for joining me. It's uh, tremendous that you've given up your time to speak to us. Um, I think the first thing to do is is introduce you both to the listeners. Uh, Greg, could you start us off? Who are you and... What has your journey been like so far as any Castle United fan? Hi, Alex. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, so um, my journey started, I guess, when I was born in Newcastle. The privilege of that and, and and growing up, you know, born in the 80s in Newcastle and then growing up as a kid on Kevin Keegan's magnificent side and then, you know, going into growing up a bit further and, and a bit older as a teenager and beyond into the Bobby Robson football and the Champions League days and aged around 17, 18, I really got into going to away games. Keith Barrett's bus for a while, Swifty's bus. Um, finally, I could afford the train and I enjoyed that a bit more. But, you know, I managed to do 150 odd away days. And, you know, that's been my my journey and, and my, you know, love of Newcastle United, really. And my experiences as a fan, really, that drove me and keeps driving me to, to want the best from, for this club. Brilliant. Uh, same question, Thomas. Yeah, so similar to Greg, um, born and raised in Newcastle. Um, 
I got a season ticket 20 years ago now um, under the, the Bobby Robson era. Um, grew up luckily on, on, I can remember little bits of the Kev, Kevin Keegan era. Um, I'm not as blessed as other people to have, to have experienced it in its, its full glory. Um, but I was, you know, still relatively lucky with the Bobby Robson era as well. Um, so yeah, I've been a season ticket all for 20 years. Um, and a, a regular away follower as well, similar to Greg, you know, I've, Travelled all over Europe watching Newcastle. Um, it's become a quite an addiction, big part of my life. That's pretty much it. Yeah. No, great answer. And I suppose next question would be then again for the listeners' benefit would be, uh, Greg, what what drove you to 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 the supporters' trust? I suppose, and to put the amount of time and effort that you do into into trying to drive the trust forward, and for what purpose? Yeah, so I mentioned that, and I got really got into going to uh, away games and the like uh, around around you know that age. And then I, I, you know, you see certain issues and 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 you, you see certain injustices, and, and that's one of the reasons uh, how football fans are treated when they go to away games. Um, you know, having police coming on buses and just you know unbelievable behaviour there, having you know being kettled things like that uh, is one thing you want to stand up. Fans need that voice and to be stood up for. But then also the way the football club's been over the last few years. And, you know, I, I know a few of you guys before I got involved with the trust through some of the other protests that we've all been involved in over the years. And, you know, seeing a, a, the trust as a, as a formally structured organization with a, with a, you know, a proper, a proper governance in place, a proper structure uh, and a meaningful relationship with the FSA, the FA effectively, and, and then a, a vehicle to have that actual meaningful influence um, as a as a proper body um, and and with a strong membership. And I thought it was you know when we had that first conversation about me getting involved, I thought you know we can really do something here if we can build up a real big member base because the Newcastle fan base over the years has had its little fractions here and there, and, and sometimes it still does. But if we can build a real meaningful movement. Um, with a really strong voice with more members, then we can have more say and more influence. And with over the last year and a half that I've worked with you two both on this, we're really starting to make those inroads and, and we really together, we really can make make more. Great answer. And Thomas, same question. Yeah, so I've kind of been involved with, in fan activism. I, I have such an interest in football fans. I really find it the whole football fan fan experience really fascinating and I've always been wanted to be involved in in things going on at Newcastle United you know I've I have got strong opinions I won't lie about that and um you know being a being a, a regular away traveler as well I get to experience quite a lot of opinions from other football fans and um so I've been part with like the fans forum um and then obviously other groups that have come up in the the last few years. Um, but the one that's always stood out is is the trust. You know, it's starting to to build its way back up into into a really meaningful organisation. You know, it, it's got a great board at the moment um, with with everyone else that's on it, um, and it it's starting to make the right sort of moves um, for me personally. Um, and I, and I just hope that it's. That continues whether I'm on the board or not. Um, so yeah, like I say, fan activism is just something that's always been a big part of my my football experience. And if I can help in any in any way, shape, or form, then then I, I'm just really really happy to be a part of it. Brilliant. And to finish off this little part about intros, I'm, I'm going to assume 
that, that that almost everyone listening has has heard my story about the trust before. I'm not going into too much detail, but but I was invited onto it back in 2017, um, and then co-opted as a board member around then in 2018. And the the trust, um, I mean Newcastle United as, a, as an entity, has been struggling for a long time uh, to to reach its potential. I think the trust had also kind of come to a little bit of a, a dead end in terms of it was struggling for membership, it was struggling for infrastructure, uh, it was basically being ignored by the football club and you know it had a seat on the fans forum more on that later but ultimately um you know I just kind of felt that it, it really needed a, a reboot for for much of this, the same reasons that that both Greg and, and Thomas have outlined there that I'm I'm passionate about football and Newcastle United, but I'm passionate about football supporters because you know every sport's different, um, but football is is weird because football is so dependent on supporters. Not just up and down the football pyramid where gate gate receipts are essential, but you, you're seeing the impact now of, of watching these empty games um, in the Bundesliga. If anyone's tried to watch them, it, you don't half miss the fans who are there, and we're essential to this. I hate I hate the term, but I'll use it. This product of Premier League football and Championship football as well, I'd say, were essential. But we're, we're treated as if we don't matter, we don't exist. Um, you know, in, in many of the, the media interviews I've given in recent weeks to people around the world who have tried to tell me that I have to protest the proposed takeover for human rights issues because I have the power to change things, I had to remind them that in season 2017-18, I bought a ticket to watch Newcastle play at Everton for a game that was scheduled to kick off on the Saturday. And because Arsenal reached a Europa League semi-final with about 10 days' notice, it got moved to a Monday. So, you know, like literally the, the absolute bottom of the ladder there for people to, you know, to care about was the fans, was us, was us 3,000 who sold out the away and it was just like, ah, oh, they'll, they'll just have to sort it, won't they? So I didn't, I didn't even have a power, the power to make a game. I'd already bought a ticket for at an advertised time, kick off at that time for the benefit of other people, to be moved for other people to watch on television, mostly mostly non-supporters of, of, of the two clubs in question. So I'm, I'm really keen and, and always have been to, to try and magnify voices of football supporters. And I think the trust is is quite comfortably the best way to do that in Newcastle United. And, um, you know, through guys like Thomas and, and Greg and many other people as well, we kind of relaunched the trust, oh, what, February 2019 now with, with, with a new board completely... Uh, we have had all sorts of behind-the-scenes shenanigans to, to fix because, uh, you know, running a membership organization with tens of thousands of people nearly requires a, a pretty good infrastructure, and, and that's the kind of stuff that is, is pretty boring and I'll not go into, but it's it's been one hell of an effort by everyone involved and, of course, the thousands of people who've joined and engaged to get it to where it is now. Uh, still a long way to go, and that's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast to talk about where we'd like to see it go and, and the purpose and point of it all. Next, guys, to, to ask you and put to you, I'll start with you, Thomas. Newcastle United and Farm Communication, if I had to ask you to give it a mark out of 10 now, what would you give it? Um, I'd, I'd probably give it a two. What? That's, it might be, be, be unfair. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I think there's certain things that the football club probably do right. It just goes under the carpet because they do so many things wrong. Um. You know, similar to what you touched on there with with Everton away, like with there was just no communication to fans whatsoever. We'd all booked travel, we'd all booked with tickets, and it was just a, an absolute p- 
pain in the arse and 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 there was just no consideration for it. I know I know that I think they refunded some people's travel money um, for the, for those that couldn't travel, but still it was it was just such a weak effort. Um, and and you know the, the the big stat that rings out for me is the um, the the Monday night stat of fourteen away games on a Monday night since we've had one at home. We've been arguing about that since it was like six in a row. And it just it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And the club have never not once stood up for us on that on that front. And that's what that's what really, really annoys me. Um so yeah, just on, on fan communication, I'll I'll give it a two and that's probably being fair. Um ask us again tomorrow, I'll give it a one. <laughs> Greg, same question. Note. Um it to be perfectly frank, I think it's horrific. I think it's disgraceful. I think it's disrespectful. I think, you know, I think there's some good people who work at the club uh, in positions where their hands are tied. But if we think of, you know, you probably all know who I'm going to talk about here, but when your fan, your dedicated fans liaison officer is also the head of media and PR, you've got a problem. It's a clear conflict of interest as a starting point. So, you know, and, and that's just one point, you know, you, there's nothing there. Um, the, the club doesn't stand up for its supporters. It doesn't interact with them in any way. You know, it, it, it's been found in the past to deliberately mislead. Uh, okay, different chief executive, whatever, Derek Lambias, deliberately mislead the fans, dislib- deliberately mislead the press. You know, nothing's improved really since then. You know, a little bit's around the edges. So I'd give it a flat zero. Can I change my answer after listening to Greg? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wondered where your few points came from. Like, I'd be interested to see the kind of the score, Rick. You know, like when your teacher marked your exam in the past and, and would tell you why you did shite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, it was it was just what Greg touched on. There is some good people there, and it's probably them that you try and stick up for. But yeah, I think I think Greg's made some really good points there. Let's let's go into. I think we're we're really going to get our teeth into Newcastle United in this one. But let let's just go into kind of the, the purpose of fan communication. Because it sound it sounds obvious as well what football club doesn't talk to its fans um, apart from Newcastle United and you know the the Premier League are pretty clear in this one and, and Greg this week or last you dug out for us the um, the Premier League uh, rules and regulations on what on what each club is supposed to do according to the Premier League handbook mm-hmm. and I'll run through those really quickly and each club shall employ one or more appropriate senior officials whose responsibility shall include the delivery of the club's policies regarding its supporters. Anyone know what Newcastle's club policy is this season? Because I don't. Um, Ensuring there's a regular point of contact within the club for the club's supporters. You know, I've had had fans with similar incidents or or reports of abuse or issues with stewards who who haven't known where to go with the club or how to do that. And that's got to be a failure of communication. The next point is liaison regularly with the club's management, um, including on safety and security related issues as they affect supporters and policies. Again, I you know I don't I don't hear anything from the club about that. Uh, each club shall devise, document, and publish policies or, or, or policy with regard to ticket and merchandise relations with its supporters, season ticket holders, and others having an interest in the activities of the club. Um, again, if anyone can point me in the direction of such a statement, that would be great. Uh, the club's policy with regards to its stakeholders should provide for consultation with them on a structured and regular basis through forums, questionnaires, and focus groups, and by the publication of policies on major issues in an easy-to-digest format, 
and promote supporter and community liaison and provide uh, the establishment of liaison structures where none exist. Um, Thomas, do you think Newcastle United currently meet any of those Premier League obligations? No. I'll, I'll give one example. The, the ticketing meeting that we that the trust attended back in December, um, obviously part of the new setup of, of fan communication that the club tried. So at the ticketing meeting, um, I think there was only, there was about five people turned up. Um, there was no real senior authority at that meeting, um, one that we could relay financial questions to about ticket pricing or anything like that. Anything, any strong questions we were able to ask, it was always, we'll get back to you on that one. To this day, so bearing in mind that meeting was on, I think, the 17th of December, we are yet to see the minutes from that meeting. They still haven't been published on the website, even though we've asked numerous times. It, it still isn't there. So we put out, obviously with the trust, we put out what, what came from from that meeting. But the club haven't, and they haven't answered some of the questions that we asked in that meeting. And it's just, it's just an absolute pain in the arse. They don't meet the obligations that you've just listed there. They, 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 they get by on the very, very bare minimum um, so that they, they face no comeback. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if they class fan communication every time we pick up the phone and ring Lee Marshall. <laughs> it really wouldn't surprise me if that, if that is another tick box, right? We've communicated with them now instead of I've just put them on the phone. You know? I'll, I'll, fill, I'll fill supporters in. And this is where we'll, we'll we'll dig into this a bit on 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 the on the meeting that Thomas references. And first of all, you know the Premier League aren't exactly, um, <laughs> you know, popular at the minute with a lot of Newcastle fans um, for obvious reasons. But I'll say this for the Premier League: those rules there are not the worst. I quite like what they've got. I think it's very clear what each club is supposed to do and the reasons for it. And would I love to see more than that? Of course. And again, I'll reference to the kind of things that I've said to, to journalists over the past few weeks who've said that us as fans need to do more. And I'll say to them, often which doesn't make the pieces uh, or, the, or the final cuts, that actually, if you want to look at who holds power within the game, you know, they are comfortable on them in the whole, not everyone, but they are comfortable with fans being at the bottom of the pyramid in terms of decision-making, in terms of authority. Uh, the journalists who are demanding things of us are quite comfortable with with the way that football and the Premier League is structured at the minute. Whereas I'd love to see far more fan involvement in clubs. I'd love to see fan uh, involvement at board level and, and and all sorts. We'll get into that later. Um, that th- those rules to me they could go further, but you know what? For the for the Premier League, for this kind of all conquering um, corporate um, gigantic uh, huge business capitalist organization. Uh, that actually surprised me when I when when I first read that stuff um, about how much they actually expect their clubs to to engage with their supporters and, and the communicate is the key word. Make sure that each club, like I says, each club shall devise, document, and publish policy or policies regarding, and then it lists all the things. And it also you know demands that each club shall employ one or more appropriately senior officials whose responsibility. It is to carry out these policies and communicate them. And at Newcastle United, unfortunately, we just we just don't have it. Greg, you were spot on at the start of, of what you said about the person in the current position. And you, you've got this. You've had this situation where I think the, around 2013, 2014, when the Premier League started to to kind of ask its members, its football clubs, to to enact this kind of 
this kind of policy in terms of communication. And you have the creation of the fans forum um, well, back then, and it, that survived until I think the last one was held in September 2018. I was I, I attended. Um, Thomas, you were at the fans forum. Can you tell me a little bit about how it how it got underway in, in your involvement? Yeah, so basically the the club announced this this fans forum. I hadn't I hadn't really heard of anything before that, but I've, obviously since I, ha- I did know there was communication before that with like Derek Lambias and. But the ones I was attending, it was with Lee Charnley. Um, it was with John Irvin at the time, who I believe was like the finance director, um, who's subsequently left now. Um, and then like Lee Marshall, and there was other heads of departments in in the in the meeting. And it was basically you, you, you submitted an application to be on it as a certain representative. So they had like a Wayfan representative, Gallagher representative, Lees's Milburn East Stand, etc. Long distance traveling. Um, like an older generation sort of fan, a young fan, et cetera, et cetera. So being a regular away traveller, I applied for that, that category and um, and I ended up getting on it. Um, and it just turned out to be a – it was just a farce, really. Um, you know, and this is I, – I don't, I don't want to have a go at the people that were on it, but questions were being asked about like puddles outside the Gallagher end and stuff like that. It just wasn't meaningful communication with the football club. and We didn't really get much from it. I think the biggest thing I remember from my year term was I think we voted on on an away kit. Um, and it was the, what turned out to be god-awful. I think it was it was like a, a green and blue one that we wore 2015-ish, that sort of um, time. I remember... We wore it when we won at West Brom away and Perez and Colaccini scored. And um, we got a vote on that, but it never actually turned out to be the design anyway. So we're like, we picked the we picked the design we all liked and never actually turned out to be the one that we picked, um, for my recollection anyway. Just, that's just a little funny thing. But um, yeah, it just turned out to be, it just wasn't relevant. We ne- we didn't really get anywhere with it. Um, and and I totally understand people's gripes in, in future fans' forums as to the, the whole process. It just it wasn't fit for purpose. These are a symptom of a dysfunctional football club, an entirely dysfunctional football club, and it has been for a long time. You know, Newcastle United has 142 members of staff that doesn't include playing uh, and coaching and management of players. 142 to run a business with an income in the in the many millions. You know, how how can you run? a football club at the highest level with 142 members of staff. There's no executive committee. There's no executive management. There's one director, Lee Charnley. The the whole football club is entirely dysfunctional. And all of that then drips down all the way through to these types of conversations. So from the very, very top, the football club is entirely dysfunctional. When I was involved in the, my, my only fans forum meeting, 2018, um, the, the minutes that came out from that meeting, the first draft of the minutes, did not resemble in any way, shape or form what I listened to in that meeting. Yet, nearly every single other person in that meeting was comfortable with what was being put put out, which I found staggering, to be honest with you. Um, that, that, that is amazing. And and you know what? In in our or my one only conversation since I've been involved in this with the with the club on this, when they told us they have real problems writing minutes because it takes them so long. Well, they need to get better at writing minutes. 
Um, they need to get the right number of stuff there. But we offered them a, a, a I suggested a very easy solution for them to actually give this fans forum credibility. And in my entirely different world of my professional life, often end up in situations with conflict and arbitration. And those forums and mechanisms are run by an entirely independent chair who writes up the notes and writes up and looks after the manages the meeting, chairs the meeting, and then publishes the notes once both sides are happy with them. Pay for an independent chair. It's not going to cost very much for four, eight, ten meetings a year. And you solve the you solve the problem instantly. You give it credibility. They said they'd take it away, and we heard nothing. You literally solve the credibility point there in in an instant. But they're not interested. They don't want it to to work like that. They want it to be their vehicle to tick that box and not actually be held to account. I mean, to be fair, Greg, that they only turned a thirty million pound profit. So you know, can dig that deep? Um, can can dig that? I mean, Joe Linton was forty million quid, so I don't know. But essentially, you're, you're spot on in everything you say. And to, to kind of continue this this journey, but that I mean, that was my only forum. A lot of Newcastle supporters were deeply unsatisfied through social media. People on the fans forum, probably quite rightly, felt that they had become kind of targets, or, or people took their anger out on them. But I also heard complaints from members of the fans forum that the club hadn't set up email addresses for fans to get in touch with them about issues to raise at the forum. And it's like, that's, that, that's so backwards that, that it, it, this time I will, I'll not stick up with the club because they handpicked who was in the forum, but it's not, it's not the club's job to, to make sure that the people who are there communicating with communicate, um, it, it, not everyone on, a, on any fans forum moving forward has to be elected. Um, obviously, at the Trust, we have, hoping to have, annual elections. We had one of the UK's biggest ever support elections last year, if not the biggest one. Over 3,000 people cast votes in it. Uh, I was very fortunate to be re-elected. Um, and, and at least that, if I was to speak to the club, at least that gives me some kind of accountability to the people who elected me by A, being able to to, to elect someone to a, to, a, to a position to communicate with the club, hopefully. But B, if I do a bad job or do a, an unrealistic or, or unreasonable job, then I could be voted off. Um, the, has, the club never really grasped that. They were always happy with people that they, for whatever reason, I'm not going to even speculate on the motivations. They were happy with the people in the fans' home for a reason. Now, in 2018, uh, in, in you know, season 2018, there were supposed to be four fans' forums there was one. One of the reasons that the fans' forums didn't go ahead is that Newcastle um, were picked for a Monday night game, shock, away from home at Wolves. If you remember the game, it was a 1-1 draw where um, we got robbed in the last minute when Martin Dubravka was fouled. And and the club just said, oh, well, you know, our diary's just just too busy. It's just rammed. You know, we just, we just can't get you. You know, for me, that would have been okay. We'll do Tuesday <laughs> or we'll do the Monday before or the Monday after or the Wednesday, the Thursday. That meeting never happened, and the subsequent meeting didn't happen. Now, wasn't you know the fact that the club didn't even feel like they had to go ahead and really provide any kind of explanation is quite scandalous. And you talk about fan communication, there isn't really any fan communication to talk about. But I'll fast forward, and over the summer, some existing members of the fans forum kindly gave up their time, myself included, to visit St James's Park on a couple of occasions to liaise with senior club staff on a new fan structure project, which um, is, is pretty, isn't a million miles away from what we're seeing in those Premier, Premier League policy documents. 
in the handbook, but that was, and, and the club put out a communication that we were going, they were going to have several meetings a year with key fan groups, including NUST, um, and that they were going to have fan focus groups on four key areas, uh, and, and and pretty much anyone was was allowed to join and open to join. I'll be honest here, I, I didn't hate that idea. I like obviously the the idea of us having as NUST genuine meetings with Lee Charney about important matters of, at the football club. That was a positive to me, and I, and it was also keen. I was also keen from our perspective as NUST that it was those meetings weren't just with me because any previous meetings between any group and the club's hierarchy had always been one-on-one and I was keen for more people on the board to be involved in that because one I didn't think it was particularly fair on me from a selfish perspective to be to have quite a lot of responsibility and I can't speak for all fans um and and two it's you know the the idea that a one-on-one relationship can can represent 10,000 members I don't think that's accurate or reasonable uh, there are people who who wouldn't have voted for me in the supporters trust elections and, and their voices deserve to be heard as well and to be fair to Newcastle United, and to be fair to Lee Charney and, and, and Lee Marshall, they, they, they agreed to that in principle. So I was happy with that. But the, the, we're kind of this kind of all broke down when we did have these first fan focus group meetings. And, and to be fair, there was a couple of good things to come out of that. I think we got a, a genuine number from the club about how many people had cancelled season tickets in the summer, and it was around 6,000. Um, we, we were promised some information on loyalty points because one of the issues and some of the feedback we got from members was that you know, for some of the games, tickets would be on eighty points for two weeks, yeah, for for no reason because it meant if you've got seventy six points, you can't book a train, um, or you can't book a hotel, or you can't book a day of work. In a lot of cases, for Newcastle fans, unfortunately, with Monday night games, because people with eighty points were getting two weeks, and people on seventy points were getting a week. So, you know, there was a recognition of that, and there was discussions about all sorts of things which were quite positive. But as Thomas mentioned earlier. The follow-up from those meetings was like to, to call it slow would be an insult to slow. Like I don't have I don't have the vocabulary to, to describe how delayed the, the 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 not minutes but the kind of outcomes from those meetings were. And Thomas, you, you you asked me to raise it at this kind of next feedback meeting we had with Lee Charney about this process. We you know we asked for that loyalty point information. Um, how many people had how many loyalty points to that support? Is if you sat there on twenty-seven loyalty points and you're thinking, all right, here's a big game on Bournemouth away or something like that. Not that's a big game, but you know what I mean. Limited allocation, or maybe uh, West Brom, or, or if we got it to a, a quarter final away from home or something, you'd be thinking, is it even worth me here if there's ten thousand people in front of me with more loyalty points? We wanted fans to know, actually, there's only two thousand people in front of me with loyalty points, and there's three thousand tickets available. I will be able to go to this game if I make sure I pay attention and buy a ticket at the right time. I think that was a reasonable request by us. I think the club agreeing to it was was reasonable, and, and, and that, that should have been a real win and a positive for fan communication. Uh, Thomas, I don't know how many emails you've sent following it up, but I know it was a few, and we still hadn't received anything. So I went to a meeting, again, with the fans forum members, um, still involved in the process, with Lee Charney before the Norwich game, uh, where... We battered Norwich to get a nil-nil draw. Just <laughs> the Norwich missed about six golden chances, um, and it was discussed. At, it was discussed at that meeting. I think that game was the first of February. It was discussed yeah. at the meeting that they, that they would put a two-week limit on getting us information from the original meeting. So I thought, great. Now, what was that? The first of even if we ignore coronavirus and the pandemic, you know. 
we didn't even get the the, the two week promised info two weeks after that meeting, and you you, you kind of start to, to to lose what's the right word here to lose respect, yeah. Because in a professional environment, that's that's not good enough. I wouldn't run my businesses that way, and whilst it doesn't reflect badly on everyone at the club, this it, this is either important or it's not, and. <laughs> Having this kind of truncated support communication process, which had to which had to be kicked off in a positive and manner with the best of intentions, and, and and the results for something like that have to be positive early on, for the for them or whoever was involved in that decision to not send that stuff despite a agreeing to it at the meeting, b Thomas you following it up several times, c for it be raised by me to the managing director to still not receive it. I don't know what to say. I honestly don't know I what think, to say. I think there's, there's no right. effort. There's not Go much on, effort Greg. there either. Sorry, there's not much effort there either. It, in 52 weeks of the year, a 40-hour working week doesn't actually take very long to do what you've just what they what they promised to do. It's not a big ask. So I think, I think as well, the the person who was going to be submitting the the minutes. Um, Jan, who works in the box office, um, you know, she was she was lovely, and and she was she was the one emailing me apologising that the that the minutes weren't out yet. I'm thinking, why are you having to do them anyway? She, surely, min, minutes taking minutes for meetings and things like that, or especially big meetings, should that or should they should be big meetings with fans of the, of the football club? We shouldn't be relying on on Jan from the box office to release those minutes. There should be a senior official there, someone with with experience that is able to relay that information to football fans. I shouldn't be getting an apology from from someone that works in the box office. I should the apologies and the information should be coming from senior officials within the football club. And I think that just highlight they're just palming it off on whoever they can find in that football club because, as you referred to before, Greg, they are run on such a shoestring that. You've just got you've got everyone doing everyone's job because everyone needs to mull in together because there just isn't enough enough people to do the job required. Um, and I think that's one of the the big insulting things for me is that, they, like I said, they're just they're just palming off. They tick the box and then it's done. Um, we can whinge about it and they'll give us the oh yeah we'll we'll get that sorted. And then they just never do it. It's just a, a sheer lack of respect and. And for me uh, to drive into town at that meeting, you know, I was actually, I'm, I'm really interested in ticketing. I was looking forward to that meeting, and it was a complete waste of time for me. I know you referred, obviously, the getting the information about the season tickets, which was fine, Alex. But apart from that, many issues were raised, and we just we haven't got anywhere. And like I say, it was because I was talking to the wrong people. The the the, the people I was talking to, that you know, the the mean well and and. You know they've worked there long before Mike Ashley was there. So you know they, they and they know the support. Um, they know who they're dealing with. You know they know people by name. They recognise a lot of people who travel regularly, and you know so it's not really their problem. It's just it's just what what's being palmed off on them. You, you um, raise a very good point there as well, though, because you, you know everyone on that fans forum, you know, uh, and people who you know give up their time and their spare time because they care, and you're dealing with people who are. Doing, getting paid to do a job, so they're there working at work, and you're giving up your time and effort, and then held in contempt by an organisation that has been what it has been for so long now. That's an important point because you're giving up your goodwill, your time and your effort to something, and they're not giving up their time and their effort. And some of these people are good people, but they're at work, 
They're being paid to be there. It's yeah, a big difference. Yes. And that's an important difference. Yeah, 100%. It, co- it, co- it comes down to, like I said before, it's either important or it's not. And I think us as a supporters trust trying to represent our members and feedback to the football club. You know, like you, I think I went to four separate meetings about this new process. And I'm pleased, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm pleased there was meetings. I'm pleased there was engagement. I quite enjoyed a couple of those meetings. It was good talking about supporter communication with senior people at the club. But, but you know, essentially, what very little, if anything, has changed. There's still no dialogue. You remember the opening game of the season against Arsenal, Lee Charney wrote in his programme notes that we'd be hearing a lot more from him across the season. That hasn't happened. We'd be hearing, hearing from Steve Nixon or Nichols or whatever his name is. That hasn't happened. Um, I think, you know, used, you know we, we've had meetings with people from Newcastle United. And I always want to say people from Newcastle United because it's not about targeting individuals this that's not that's not what we're here to do but we we've all had meetings with them i've had several meetings with them and the term transformative communication policy or strategy was put to me several times that that was a year ago and several times since and that's been used in those meetings and it it simply hasn't happened and it's it's um i'm i'm personally embarrassed to have been part of it because i put a huge amount of my time into that Spent a lot of time with you guys discussing at board meetings and discussing with our members. Remember, we'll put out surveys and stuff like that about supporter communication. If you don't have the people at the top genuinely wanting to hear what you've got to say and answer this, the, the questions of supporters, it, it doesn't just come across as lazy. It comes across as arrogant and hubristic. And that that's unfortunately where we found ourselves with Newcastle United. And it's culminated because I think we'll have to move on to the future now. It's culminated in the experience that we've had, and particularly you, Thomas, with with the the, the, the farce about ticket refunds at the minute. And can you just fill listeners in a little bit about that? Yeah, no problem. Um, so we contacted the football club on, I, th- I believe it was the 18th of March. So this was before all of the, the takeover stuff came out. Uh, it was just after they'd, they'd postponed the Sheffield United game. With concerns that they that they were they were taking money for next season, um, it was it was getting widely reported that we wouldn't be attending games for a long period of time because of of the coronavirus, um, and we we obviously had concerns that, that they were still taking money for next season. Um, so we raised that issue first. Then, as the games continue to get postponed and, and the time frame was just getting added to. Um, we we then started to raise obviously the the, the matter of ticket refunds um, when when it was quite clearly evident that we weren't going to be witnessing those games. So um, and the answer from the from the club was always nothing's confirmed yet. Um, basically, we're not going to do anything about it yet just now. Then obviously the takeover stuff came out and. And I think we've we've always we we since then we followed a line of of simply you know we understand that the takeover is going ahead, but that doesn't excuse them for not communicating with the fans to at least send look we know your concerns because many many people we've been in touch with them loads of times thousands of fans have probably emailed them saying what's happening with my refund they're not getting a response because the staff will put on furlough in the ticket office and um you know they they just they were just palming us off again um. 
Now, the matter with the ticket refunds is obviously the fact that we are now owed money for five Premier League games. Um, some fans will be owed money for the the FA Cup game against Man City uh, and Bournemouth away. So, a 1,000 fans have purchased a ticket for Bournemouth away. We have also paid, I've personally paid, four instalments of next season's season ticket. Other people who pay in a lump sum have paid already for next season. And that should have just been, it should have just been stalled until we knew what was happening. Every other Premier League club has done that. So why not us? I've had a lot of people say, well, we're going through a takeover, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's fine. We understand that. And we hope that obviously happens. Um, but the fact that they, ha- they haven't seen fit to communicate with people, when people are losing their jobs, they've lost their income, and they, they see fit to just stay quiet on a matter that where, where fans are entitled to a refund. When every other Premier League club is doing exactly the same, it, it's bang out of order and it, it goes back to that lack of respect once again. Um, and as of last week, when we last spoke to the club, the, the stance was still the same, that they are no further forward, nothing's confirmed. Um, and I, I dare say we won't be hearing about this for, for some time. But to me, as soon as a ball's kicked against Sheffield United, whether regulations say it differently, to me, a breach, a, a, they're in breach because if if a ball's kicked against Sheffield United and no and no one's in that ground, I want my money back. And and you know people say, well, you know, you can uh, put it on next season. That's fine. To be honest, I, I'd rather my money was in my pocket rather than Mike Ashley's when I'm entitled to that money. So, um, and and I just I just wish that they would understand the situation that people are in. I'm, I'm in a difficult position at the minute. You know, I've had, I've had to get another job because I'm not getting any financial support. So I, 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 I personally feel that I need this money back. Um, I would be happy to wait if they just communicated and they, they understood our position. But it's just the fact that they've just ignored it and that's, that's what's bothered me the most. I, th- I think that this, this comes to the heart of what we've been talking about in that... You either matter you, or, or you don't as a supporter, yeah. in my opinion. You either want to communicate or you don't. And I think, like you say, that it's almost layered, isn't it? Because you know, it's one thing taking money for next season because you know we all signed up for that. We all agreed to the direct debit. Yeah. I personally don't think we should be being charged for that. I think I think they should have stopped. It's easy for the club to do stop the direct debits and pause them and deal with it, but to not refund people. Money when when the club is financially secure. I mean, by the way, this is it in the media. We we're always hearing about how secure financially we are through Mike Ashley. We're great, well done. Can I have my money back then? And they can pay the players. All the staff are getting paid as they should be. Um, but but I mean, the money. By the way, it's it's going to be a significant sum the longer it's left, and it's you know it 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 comes down to. Do we think we can get away with with not doing anything? Because if we can, regardless of what, what the right thing to do is, let's do what we can get away with, and that's what it feels like. And for us, with someone senior at Newcastle like we do, and 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 that person can only tell us what he can tell us, and say just he just doesn't know. That that's also a worry. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. to me, I'm going to blame Mike Ashley for this. He he is the owner of the football club. He has a responsibility to refund this money to people. And even even if the turnaround, before we get this podcast out, in the next couple of days, even if they turn around and do it then, it's still a disgrace. Yeah. Why 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 are we the last Premier League club once again? To Why, why Newcastle United? The last 20 out of 20. And it goes back to what I heard in the fans forum in 2018 when a senior person at the club kept saying to me as I was 
rambling on probably and, and kicking off about all sorts. And he kept saying, we're, not, we're, we're far from the worst. We're far from the worst. And then I said, well, is that the aim of Newcastle United to be far from the worst? And then I got accused of putting words in his mouth, even though he'd literally said that about seven times in the previous 60 seconds. Like, now we are the worst because we're the last ones. Assuming that there is communication about this, we're still the last ones in the Premier League. So of all the 20 clubs in the Premier League, Newcastle care least about their supporters in this respect. And it's an absolute disgrace. But we'll have to move on because it's been very negative podcast so far greg let's talk about the future in in in, in the hope of a takeover you know how how hopeful are you that this will bring in a new dawn of of supporter communication and why well i think i'm very hopeful um pending the takeover going ahead um i dare to think what what life would be like if it if it didn't happen as a Newcastle United fan with a current owner. But yeah, looking forward, you look, the things we hear about Amanda Stavely and the group that she's put together are very positive about her. You know, we understand she offered a, a, a fan representation uh, on board level at Liverpool in the past when she was looking to put together a, a package there and a deal there that, that fell through. We understand she's talking to the right people in the city, uh, at the council, etc. And, and, you know, all the noises that you hear are very positive. And I think, you know, Equally, uh, for any new owner, it's a, a, an easy win uh, to completely fundamentally reset that. And yes, fan representation at board level, uh, it, it would be magnificent, um, but perhaps not necessarily expected. But what you expect is a club that wants to play its role again, really, in the heart of the community and everything that, that, that the city is. Um, you know, I, I still love it when I come back up to Newcastle. Uh, one, of, one of the quirks of Newcastle, on a, on a, if you've been in town on a match day, is walking back to the station and an old, an old dear with a shopping trolley in her 80s who, who, who sees you going to the train station and asks what the score was. And that You know, that's quite a unique thing in Newcastle and that community feeling. And that club sat up there on that hill being aloof and, 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 and arrogant for so long. It's such an easy win to just bring that back, reinvigorate that, that, that communication. Um, and, you know, really take the supporter issue seriously and, and rebuild that relationship. Um, it, it, it's an easy win for whoever owns the club, but it, it has to be done. What what can the club gain, apart from um, what Greg's correctly pointed out there in terms of, you know, um, positive PR, in terms of doing it, in terms of involving supporters? What What is that a gain for the football club, do you think, from supporter communication on a practical level and how the club is run? I think Newcastle United fans are so passionate about their football club that the, it can just it can just fly. It really sounds so corny there, but it, it's it's the fact that, like I say, we care that much about the football club that if you put Newcastle fans in charge of certain matters, you know, you give them a big opinion on certain matters, things that matter to us, and you really help them in in that situation. Then you've just got you've got them on board. You, you've got you've got a positive atmosphere at every single game, whether you win or lose. As long as the club is trying to be the best that it can be, and, it, and you involve you involve the supporters in that in that journey on the things that matter to the supporters, you're onto a winner immediately. You know that the the grounds full, people are buying merchandise, um, and it just spreads the the positivity of the football club. The negativity of the football club recently, obviously in the last in the in this under this ownership has been so so negative, empty seats all over the place. You're going to have a full ground. 
and, and all these easy wins that we that we hope that they'll they'll come in with you know the ticket in such an easy one um like i said just getting getting the fans involved even even just a little bit give them something back let them feel a part of their football club again and you will be you'll be very very surprised how far it can go i totally agree and i said this on some other podcasts both with with true faith but other other outlets as well it, it, it sounds strange to say this. Do football fans matter? Because the club without fans no longer exists. If if Newcastle United isn't supported by anyone, it ceases. It ceases to exist. It doesn't. It doesn't exist for anyone apart from the owner. But then it would just. You know, I don't know what would happen. That if you want to engage with your supporters, you want to make your supporters happy. From well, you know, from a a moral obligation because the success of the club is good for the owners and good for the supporters. From a commercial perspective as well, you, you, you touched on it there, Greg, before. If, if that football club is at the centre of the city, if everyone wears its colours with pride, if owning a season ticket again is a badge of honour, if following your team across the country isn't ruined by the team like it is at the minute a lot of the time, um, but otherwise a good doubt, if it, if it means more to people, then the club will flourish, like you say, Thomas, then they'll make more money, they'll be able to reach their ambition through us. So for me, any major decision at the football club, supporters that need at least need to be consulted. And you've got groups like the trust, um, who, and you've, it's not just the trust, by the way, you've got, you've got people upstanding Newcastle fans and, and I, I, I could name drop a few, but I'm not embarrassed them. But I'm talking about certain websites out there who, who people believe and trust. You've got an excellent local press pack who care about the club you know, you've got all sorts of different groups you could speak to and think it's not it's not a, it's not supporters dictating how the club is run. It's yeah. what do you think of this? How about this? We're thinking about this. What do you think? What would your members think about this? Actually speak to supporters. And if if you are season ticket prices or club policies on certain things, they are for supporters at the end of the day, the vast majority of them. I'm not talking about asking supporters who needs to play in goal on a Saturday. Well, obviously, the answer will be Martin Dubravka. But think of a less contentious question. You know, Think of something to do with the kind of things we spoke to the club about previously. Yeah. Supporters will often give you the, the right answer. So it's not about demanding things. It's not about telling the club what to do. But consultation is key. And at, at the end of the day, this is a business which in normal circumstances uh, would operate you know, nearly every single day of the year. So it's not... A, it's not possible to support um, consult supporters on every single aspect of running the club. But the big things, especially which relate to supporters, they should be put to supporters. And I'm not talking about every single supporter, but the groups exist. There will be more that spring up. NUST is there. It's ready. We'll have the democratic structures in place. We'll have the thousands of members. I think, and I might be biased, I am biased, but I think we could even now, assuming there's no takeover, it's not about me or Greg or Thomas. It's not about the board of the trust. It's about the members and the rest of the supporters. We can help the football club determine how it can best communicate and facilitate its supporters. We we, we are here to help. We want to help the football club. It's not about making demands. It's not about um, even just about criticism or about results on the pitch. But if new owners or even the existing owners want to run Newcastle United for the benefit of its supporters, and I sincerely hope that they do, because those those goals that they have as owners should be similar to the goals that the supporters have, and Newcastle United being the best it can be, as Greg's correctly said. 
do it. It's it's not impossible. It's not an impossible task. Speak to supporters. Find out what they're thinking. I think that the people who currently own the football club view supporters with suspicion and view supporters as um, dispensable. And there'll always be more of them. And if 10,000 don't turn up, then it's not the end of the world. And if we're merchandising our commercial revenue plummets in comparison to the rest of the league increasing, it doesn't really matter because we've still got the TV money. That Those days have to be over, whatever happens. Supporters need to be at the centre of the football club because like you just said, Greg, God knows what happens if this takeover doesn't go through. And I still think it will go through, not that I have any inside information. But you know, it, what, what an opportunity for new owners to, to grasp this opportunity to work with the city, to work with the supporters and, and create something truly special. It can be done, and it, and it frustrates me at the minute that we've had to go through as a support in all areas what we've gone through over the last 13 years. Yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right, Alex. And you, know, you, you touched on it a little bit. You look at the people that have walked away um, from the football club because of this current regime, um, you, know, you, can, you can quite easily get them back on board by just making them feel a part of it again. And I'll, I'll use an example. Something you know, you're talking about, the things that, that the club can liaison with fans. And I'll go back to this because this is a huge bugbear of mine, and it's the the Monday night situation with with games on Sky. Sky aren't going to stop putting Newcastle on on a Monday night away from home. What can be made easier is right the, the football club turning around saying to the fans, right, um, how can we get you back home? Because at the minute you go to a Monday night away game, you can't get back home unless unless it's unless you drive or it's on a bus and you get back at, at stupid o'clock in the morning, or if it's a London game you're likely to have to stop over or something like that they've never it do, to me it doesn't feel like they've even tried to explore the avenues available to them build relationships with other companies to 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 make things just that little bit easier on fans they're the sort of things that you could ask opinions on um and I, and I just feel that if, if they if they do start to communicate with fans on on those sort of issues and, and other things as well that that we can all have an impact on like like you like you've said, it, it really can't flourish. And and I think also the the role that the club can play in the community uh, and in the city of Newcastle as well. And one of the things that since I've been involved in the trust that 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 I was lucky enough to lead for us was when we uh, engaged lawyers and and tried to object to the strawberry place development. Now a lot of people are up in arms about that development because of the impact on potentially extending the Gallagher. Forget about that for a minute, really, because it's not just about that. That is a prime piece of land that was owned by the club as a bridge, really, between St. James's Park, which is the best located stadium in the country in terms of its city centre location, and the rest of the city centre. Think about what that could have been if some some of us as fans and people of, of, of Newcastle and as a city had worked with the club, and even with some external investors as well on that, to create a gateway between St. James's Park and and the rest of the city, to create a commercial development that made money for the football club that went back in and was invested into the community and into the pitch, but equally also, you know, had quality facilities, quality buildings, you know, a museum, um, you know, a fo- hotel football type type thing that, 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 you know, that you see in other parts of the, of the country, you know, that, that could have been a real, a real development there for the benefit of the whole of Newcastle United. But instead, the club has sold it to Mike Ashley. Sold the land to himself. Then sold it on and on and on in terms of the lease there, you know. And from what we understand as well, you know, Newcastle United didn't object to that planning application because it effectively couldn't, because it 
because of who its owner is and his owner the owner gains gains the money when the deal goes through but from what we understand as well there's also a an agreement between the the developer there and and the club that the club will get payments uh if when the buildings uh, are, are finished it's it, it's almost like a at a certain height it's almost like a you know we'll we'll give you a payment for for your loss of light is how it's been being built you know so the club has, has sabotaged its own future because it doesn't want to be the best it can be as 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 a sporting entity but also just as a as a business that uh, uh, and it just frustrates me and that's the type of thing that a new owner can get on top of and not just not just that you know that might be too late there with with Shrewsbury Place but you look at the training ground it's outdated you know it, it's had a lick of paint when Rafa complained about it but you know Joe Kinnear of all people you know said meant a couple of years ago how how long ago was that four years ago training ground not fit, not fit not fit for purpose we need a new one and then a few years later you know the club well it's adequate no one was the line no one no one ever didn't sign for this club because of the training ground that's what Lee mm-hmm. Johnny said you know there's so much opportunity there for new owners to, to reinvigorate the club. I think that sums it up quite well. We'll, we'll finish this extended part one, uh, which it has been with that. So thanks to Greg and Thomas. Uh, appreciate it lots. And I'll post your Twitter bios in the link to this podcast if you want to follow them on a regular basis. Next up, it's going to be me and Chris from The Athletic talking about fan media communication and how he thinks that impacts supporters. Joined on the line now, and delighted to be by Chris Woff, who is the Newcastle United correspondent for The Athletic. I'm, I'm absolutely positive every single person listening to this, Chris, knows what The Athletic is. But for those who don't or tune in for the first time, uh, can you just give us a little bit of a plug? Yeah, so The Athletic launched in the UK last summer. It had actually been in the US for three or four years before that. And essentially, it's a, it's a subscription-based website and app uh, which now covers the Premier League as it has done since last summer. And there's a dedicated correspondent, at least one for each uh, of the clubs up here in the northeast. East, Arkham and Newcastle United. We also have George Colgan, who I'm sure many of you will be aware of. And it, it's sort of, it's just a different way of, of, of approaching, uh, sort of covering the club. It's more long form journalism. Uh, we don't have any adverts on the, on the website. So the subscription you pay for very much just brings you hopefully quality in it and just a, a nice product, a nice clean, uh, clean looking app for, for you to, to want you, if you want to find out about Newcastle United. Yeah, and you also do the pod on the time, which is an excellent listen every week uh, on all things Newcastle United. So check that out if you haven't already. And Chris, we're, I've asked you to, to come and speak to the listeners today uh, about communication and listeners have just heard me and the lads from, from the Trust absolutely eviscerate the club's communication. Uh, certainly while we've been dealing with them and probably for much of the 13 years of the Ashley era, if not all of it, um, how how about you yourself working uh, as a journalist, working in the media? How have you found working with Newcastle United to achieve uh, whatever goals you have or uh, have had in terms of the stories you try to, to produce? How has it been for you? Is there anything that you think has been done well by the club? Um, well, well, first of all, I'll just say the one, the one caveat I'll give is that the, in terms of when I've covered a club, the only club I've ever actually dealt with is Newcastle United in terms of on a day-to-day basis. I've never been on another patch and, and covered them regularly, so I haven't really got anything to compare it to in that sense. So I can only speak of, of when I've spoken to colleagues who do cover cover other clubs. There, are, there have been some things that Newcastle don't wear, particularly when um, they went down to the championship. The club became a lot more open. Uh, there was a lot more 
access. This I was still working for the Chronicle and Journal at the time, and we got a, a lot of uh, opportunities to speak to to players more often. And uh, at the time, Rafa Benitez's press conferences were brilliant because a lot of the national papers weren't really going on a weekly basis, so there'd be just three or four of us sitting there having a good long chat uh, with, with Rafa Benitez. And, and really, it was a, it was a lot easier to run things by the club. But uh, in recent years, certainly over the last year or so, it's reverted to, to, to like it was when I first started covering the club when Steve McLaren was in charge. And it, it has become uh, more difficult to, to get things checked out and, and run by it. I, I would defend the communications department in terms of the people who work with it. I think there's some very good people there. I think if they were given the opportunity to do things in a different way, they would be more open and they would be more receptive to give an answers and sometimes that can can be very useful. I think that the issue sometimes we get is if there is a, a story which uh, which basically sometimes I've had an issue where I've rang up the club and it'll be in their eyes negative and it essentially is a negative story, but they will try and argue sometimes that it is not a story. Now, at the end of the day, that is not the club's decision to make. It is my editor's decision. It is us editorially. It is us journalistically to decide whether we think something is important enough for our readers, be that when I was at the Chronicle or now at, at the Athletic. If we think it is a story, then I'm afraid the way that, that Newcastle United works as an institution in the city is that that, that, that they need to engage with that, and some, and it's very very difficult sometimes to get them to 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 engage on certain points. Um, for example, the the Strawberry Place development, which I know the trust were very much. Uh, the forefront of trying to to, to prevent uh, the sale of the land, or well, sorry, more the the uh, plan of permission being given on, on the sale of land. Now, I was at the uh, the hearing, the which uh, the planning hearing at uh, in Jesmond on that day, and I heard Greg speak from, from the trust. I heard Gianura speak. Uh, I heard the council speak, and I saw the eventual decision. I'd been tweeting out from it, and then afterwards, uh, I basically got a phone call from the club, starting to to want to speak about it, and just the sort of tone of it, and I, and. And basically, the issue I had was, A, the club weren't there, and B, the club kept telling me this wasn't a club issue. And I was thinking, well, why are you calling me? If this isn't a club issue, why why is the why is someone from the club on the phone to me basically asking about the narrative beyond it? And so, so you have issues like that whereby the club didn't want to be painted in a negative light to do with it. They claimed it was a Mike Ash issue, not a club issue. But really, the two are inherently linked. It was it was the club owned the lease on the land that uh, Mike Ashley sold, the lease on the land from the club, um, and so something like that, I just think sometimes they're, they're very diff- they're very poor at dealing with almost crisis management. Sometimes they they don't they aren't very good at getting ahead of a story. And in some ways, as a journalist, I can argue that that makes it better for me because it means I can make the story better in some ways and make it easier. But if the club don't engage, they don't know how to necessarily crisis manage in that stage. And something which could be a small issue can become a massive issue just purely because the club as has become the cliche of have become the no comment club, which is not always a bad thing, but just the way that it's painted with Newcastle is because so many things are no comment. It's very difficult to actually get a steer or anything on anything. Very interesting that, um, you know, the, the strawberry place thing was a, an interesting one. And, you know, the whole, the whole purpose of Newcastle United, not for the first time came into question. Does it exist for one man's benefit financially through his other businesses and his other, financial affairs or does it exist to be the best football club it possibly can be do you do you think that from a staffing perspective at the club do you I mean again you, you've clearly said there that you've only worked at Newcastle United do you speak to colleagues particularly the athletic which covers all the Premier League clubs in great detail do you think that you know there's an issue with with 
the manpower at St. James's Park for stuff like fan communication, or, or do you think it doesn't play too much of a role in how they do things? No, I, th- I think that there, I think that there is a, an issue with manpower. Um, I mean, what alarms me is I don't actually think that, in some ways, when I speak to some colleagues, that, that Newcastle are actually the worst to deal with. Um, I know that Celtic yeah. are awful for um, for our, for in terms of dealing with I know they're not in the Premier League but, but we, have a, we have a correspondent who deals with Celtic up there and they can be very very difficult to get things out of so the, Newcastle are, are not the worst but, but but I think they are among among the worst now the, the, yes I do think that there used to be a dedicated fans liaison officer now that has essentially become uh, a role which has is, is become uh, almost amalgamated with, with the head of media and uh, really likely Marshall is the head of media but th- those should be separate roles that they're different and they're both full-time jobs in my opinion particularly for a club the size of Newcastle United uh, with the fan base as engaged and as large as Newcastle United I, I, Can I just interject there Chris just I appreciate you, you are spot on with what you're saying just to give listeners an idea Crew Alexandra have two uh, supporter liaison officers who do that job full-time we don't have any well, it's, I mean, that is just, that is, I mean, that just makes me chuckle, but they, I, I, I chuckle almost out of disbelief, not not in terms of it, because it isn't funny, really. If you actually, if you actually think about it, it, it isn't funny that, that a club with, with that, of that size, in a city this size, never mind going beyond the support for Newcastle United outside of, of just Tyneside itself. It, it's, there are so many issues, some of which seem minuscule, but for, 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 for fans on their match day experience, say if you're a disabled fan or you want something dealt with in, in, in a certain bit or you, you turn up your seat and it's broken or whatever, it just needs to be, I think that could be far easier and far more streamlined if they had people who, who dealt with that and someone whose who's full-time job is also to, to be head of media shouldn't have to deal with things like that because, as I've said, when you cast United, there is so much scrutiny on it that there are so many other issues which they need to be dealing with and which they should be dealing with on a full-time basis. Newcastle is a very much a pared-down club. Now, I think that some clubs have bloated, certainly media departments, and by that I almost mean internal media departments. I know I remember when Sunderland were in the Premier League and there used to be hundreds of people seemed to turn up at games to, to, to cover it from them. You had one person doing Twitter, one person doing Facebook. Everton always seemed to have a lot as well. And so, and I'm not, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to denigrate any of the jobs that they do. I just think there is a, probably a happy medium and Newcastle are at the bottom end of it and some other clubs are, are probably at the top end of the scale. But for, for, for Newcastle United, it, it's basically at every layer of the club that you look at. If you look at, the, I mean, the only Premier League club with one listed director, which is Lee Charnley, no other Premier League club has that. No other business that size. If, if we are going to treat it as a business, as Mike Ashley wants to, no other business has just one director for, for a club that has a turnover of £174 million a year, whatever it is. It is quite astounding really but that is almost replicated all the way through and that you just feel that everything needs fleshing out when they were relegated into out this was before my time coming to the club but everyone tells me that when they were relegated in 2009 uh, 10 that season essentially it was all cut back because they, they probably were bloated then but then it just hasn't been built up again since Newcastle have become a Premier League club and so things do just seem to be on the bare minimum and with the fan liaison side with engaging with supporters that for me is one of the first things that should be dealt with if you were looking in the club and looking at what can we really improve here. You bring in a few dedicated people. You have one maybe for security. You have one for match day experience. You have one for uh, disability supporters. You have whatever it may be. But I just think you should have these are full time jobs in themselves because just covering people who are coming to St James's Park in terms of home fans, albeit before ten thousand 
pre-half season tickets given away or whatever. Historically, Newcastle over the last few years have been getting roughly 50,000 home supporters. So that's 50,000 people you're having to deal with there. But then you've also got other issues in terms of people wanting to, to watch NUFC TV or listen to the commentary through BBC Newcastle on NUFC TV. These are all things which, in my opinion, they need several members of staff for and they have one who it isn't even their full-time job to deal with that. Yeah, that's a great answer. I, I totally agree. Moving on to the, the the work that you do, and this is this is what I'm interested in. Why I asked you onto the show, you, you essentially, to me, and you could feel free to disagree here. You are part of fan communication because, again, correct me if I'm wrong. I imagine the vast majority of what you write is primarily aimed at Newcastle United fans, and Newcastle United fans engage with the likes of yourself. Um, you know, the Chronicle. I'm sorry, I'm talking about. Um, bodies here, like The Athletic, like The Chronicle, like the other Northeast-based journalists. And what they produce is of tremendous, well, I would imagine, should be of tremendous importance to the club. I understand why relationships build. And, and like you said before, you get phone calls about certain things. That that's, doesn't come as a surprise, I hope, to anyone listening. But but do you do you view uh, what you do as, as fan communication? Have you ever kind of looked at it through that prism that the football club's um, how the football club is viewed by its supporters is in part way uh, influenced by by what you write and the stories you publish. Have you ever viewed it that way? Um, it's an interesting way of looking at it. I suppose, I suppose yeah, I, I don't know if I've ever necessarily looked at it that way. What I always try to do before I, I write a piece, particularly now at The Athletic, where I've given a bit more time to really look into it and really think about the angle of it and read it, I don't pretend that anything that I write, is, particularly if it's an opinion piece, is representative of, of every single Newcastle fan. But what I try to do is I try to engage with supporters as much as possible and put myself in their shoes and what, what they expect and what they want from a story. And so, for example, um, the first game of the season was was the Arsenal match and it was when there was, it was the protest, the boycott outside. And, it, and it's, for, for the Athletic, I spent the first half of the, st- the game inside the ground and then the second half of it outside of the ground with some of the supporters, uh, some of who, obviously the first half of those who hadn't boycotted and the second half of those who had boycotted because I want to try and, and and partly this is at the Athletic, but it was also at the Chronicle, you, I want to get across what, what I feel is the majority view, but also what, what the minority potential feel. I, w- I want to be as, as wide-ranging as possible in, in, in showing fans' views. But at the same time, we are here to inform. And so, um, yeah, I do... I do f- I, the voice of the fans, I wouldn't say necessarily so much because I, I don't want to sound so self-aggrandizing in that sense. But I do I do think that we do, as, and by we, I mean the wider, certainly Northeast media, do play an, an important role. And because there sometimes is a, a sort of lack of communication, particularly from high up at Newcastle United, there is so much interest in news for what's happening in Newcastle, whether it be signings, something as superficial as that, or whether it is something uh, far more important in terms of the, the, the future of the club or where fans are, are taking into consideration. I do know that we do play an important role and I, and I, I never try to forget that and I never try to, to big ourselves up to be more important in that sense than we are, but I do think that, that, that media is vital and, and sometimes I feel that Newcastle United forget that and I don't mean that to say I, I I mean that in the sense that I think that particularly when I was at the Chronicle so at the Chronicle every day 
I was writing for to cut. We had two newspapers to fill in the Chronicle and the Journal, or Sunday Sun on a Sunday, and then we also had what, what were called web spikes. Essentially, you had certain points in the day where you you meant to have stories going out, so you had a certain amount of copy you had to write. And if there's nothing going on, then you still have to to, to generate a story. Now you either have to find that out yourself, and sometimes the club aren't going to like that, or sometimes it can be given you because you, you make an interview or whatever. And I always found it. At those times when it was most challenging for me as a journalist to try and fill the newspaper and give fans something they wanted to read about while also uh, fulfilling my role as a journalist to, to, to my news organisations, I was at the time what I was paid to do, that sometimes I would think, why don't the club just give you an in- give me an interview? Because if they give me an interview, it served them a purpose in terms of they know or they're not controlling it in the sense that I will go in and I will ask whatever questions I want in that interview and I won't let myself be gagged. But... That they, if I'm getting, say, if I get put Christian Atsu put up to, to speak to, I'm not going to go in and, and absolutely hammer Christian Atsu and just do a story which is hammering Christian Atsu. That's not going to be the only purpose of that interview. And so the club and fans actually want, fans do like those interviews. They like to hear more about what a player is like off the pitch. I think that, that, that keeping, keeping those players away, and this is a slightly different way, but keeping those players away, it, it almost, it doesn't dehumanize them, but it, it prevents you from getting their full character if you don't give them those interviews those relaxed interviews rather than a mix zone after the game which is the area where we go into to speak to players when they've just come off the pitch if you give them a more relaxed environment say if you meet them in a coffee shop or their favorite restaurant then you can really find out about a player and about that what what makes them tick and about what they like off the pitch fans want to hear that fans want to know more about those players who are playing for their club and i feel that sometimes the club and this isn't just newcastle this is a wider more premier league issue I think that they 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 miss out on presenting those positive stories, which really could be there. But when because they don't do that, the point I was trying to make is that essentially then we will end up writing stories which piss the club off. And in in some ways, they could almost crisis manage that before the story comes out in the first place because they could have just given you. It makes me sound lazy, journalist, but they could have just given you like an easy story to have written. Um, but instead they don't and then they complain about the fact that you've written something and it's like well I've got to, my job is to write something I have to write something about it. you haven't given me anything else I, so I have to go and find material for myself and I happen to have dug up something which you didn't want out there so yeah it's uh, that sorry that was a very long and, and uh, probably ponderous answer but um, uh, yeah I think that we do play an important role but it, I, I don't ever take that for granted as, it, as in I, we are like the voice of the fans or whatever I don't I don't put myself in that sort of like self-aggrandizing position no not at all and, and that's that's not not what what I or I, I didn't certainly didn't think that you or anyone else thinks of that it's just when I think of how little comes out of the football club in a communication perspective that it it's like the to me there's this kind of you alluded to it, this 24-hour almost, or definitely seven-day-a-week rolling news media about things that happen at Newcastle United or things that Newcastle United do, and the only people who don't really get involved are Newcastle United, and that seems to be the total opposite of, of most Premier League clubs. I know not everyone's perfect, but it just it just seems like they're so... They make themselves look, to me, aloof, uncaring, um, almost like supporters don't matter, and you know, if if I'd love to give them the platform to defend themselves on that, <laughs> as I'm sure would would you, and I would love to read it from somewhere else and, and see what they think. But whenever I've spoken to them about this thing, the you know, as, as I said earlier on the show, 
it was put to me several times by people at the club that that this season would see a transformative communication strategy. And obviously I was fully behind that. Um, Lee Charney was going to speak to um, local media guys such as yourselves and particularly the Chronicle, I, I heard. It, and it, when it just doesn't really happen, I know he did a really short clip for Radio Newcastle that wasn't an interview. Um, you have to wonder... You have to wonder what's going on because why have you got people at the club saying that and then it doesn't happen? It makes me think that, well, do the people at the very top, do, do they care what fans feel and think? And, you know, the, the free season ticket debacle was one of those where I found it difficult to criticise free football for some people that couldn't otherwise afford to attend St James Park because it is very expensive, despite what the club say about the ticket and policy. Um but at the end of the day, you had, according to what we were told at the trust, six thousand fans walk away in the summer, and you know, get, rather than trying to address the problems of why they walked away, giving out their tickets for free almost suggests that you know you don't exist if you've walked away. It's like, well, you can be replaced, you're replaceable, and that that kind of stuff only comes out because nothing comes out of the club. If the club were to come out and you were to speak to Lee Charney or or anyone really and go on the record about what the club is thinking, what the plan is. And we, earlier in the show, Chris, um, we went through the Premier League's not unreasonable um, directives for Premier League clubs in the handbook about how they're supposed to engage with supporters. And they're not difficult to follow. Yet at Newcastle United, we don't seem to be getting it. Um, we, we don't get it at the Trust. Haven't got it so far. The rest of the support don't get it directly. You, you guys, you know, you mentioned now, you'd, you'd prefer to get, you know, more than more than you do from the people right at the top. You just, I just wonder who wins in all this. Like the club come out of it looking badly. We don't get answers to questions that we want. What's the point of it all almost? But my final question isn't going to look back on those negatives. It's going to look forward. And assuming this proposed takeover goes through, uh, in your opinion, what would you like to see change? Like in an ideal world here, what would you like to see change in, in how the club deals with, with you and your colleagues? Um. Well, I think first of all, I'd like to see a sort of conversation take place, which is where they ask us what, how it's been over the last few years and what we think could and should be different. Now, I then don't expect them to suddenly go, oh, yeah, you can have all that, because that is obviously in an ideal world, we would get uh, inordinate access and we get to do whatever we wanted. And it'd be like in the United States where you can just turn up after uh, to train in any, any day of the week and get how many players you want and speak to them. That would be obviously an ideal world, but I just a conversation about that and also just a sort as you say, when there is a big issue at Newcastle United over the last few years, things, as I said, have mothballed to be something far more than they necessarily need to be because they don't get explained or an issue which will always remain an issue. Like take Strawberry Place, for example. If, if Mike Ashley or Lee Charnley, whoever it is, came out and said, look, We've sold the lease of the land on Strawberry Place because we've done X, Y, and Z. We don't think it's. We've looked into the studies and we don't think it's a, a realistic that, that the Gallagher end can be extended. This money will go back into the football club. I say this is hypothetical. It's never been said. And I don't know if this is the case. But if they had come out and explained that, now I still think the vast majority of supporters would probably have disagreed. But. If you explain your point of view, then at least at least that is there on the record. But otherwise, if you if you haven't explained that on the record, then you do then things just become truths which aren't truths. And we ha- I had this with with straw with um, Strawberry Place. I've had it with, with several other stories where I've gone to the club and they've basically there was a lot actually there was a lot last summer during when Rafa Benitez uh, just after he left the club. But in the last few months that he was there, 
where the club felt a lot of the coverage was very one-sided. And a lot of the coverage was very one-sided. And part of the reason why it was very one-sided was that people on Benitez's side would would chart and give their side the view. And Newcastle United wouldn't. You, you couldn't get anything even off the record from them. And it's like, they were like, it wasn't balanced at all. What you're writing, so well, I can't, I can't even be. I've asked you time and again what your point of view is on this, and you can't give me, you can't give me that. So how can it be balanced? By its very nature, it isn't going to be balanced because I've had to just present it with the information that I've had. So if I was to say to new owners, I'd say to them, look, I'm not saying that you comment on everything, but just be more open, be more engaged. If there is something that you want to do, be it at some stage, if you think right, we may rename St James's Park or if it comes 10 years down the line and the Castle United are doing really well and suddenly, yeah, we do need a bigger stadium and this site isn't 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 adequate for that. Come out and explain, say this is what we want to do. Yes, we're going to take Newcastle United away from the historic home, but the reason we want to do that is X, Y and Z. And again, I'm not saying all fans will agree with that. I'm not saying I will agree with that, but at least present it across exactly what you're trying to do. And I really do think that, 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 that don't take supporters for granted. These new... The prospective new owners, if they come in, this is more from almost an emotional point of view than, than a than a journalistic point of view, but that it will they will have a honeymoon period and they will have so much goodwill from the majority of fans to begin with, simply because they're not Mike Ashley. But don't waste that. Don't take that for granted. Because Mike Ashley had a lot of goodwill when he first came into the football club. This is the supporters are the are the very heartbeat of the club. It's a cliche, but it's because the, the club doesn't exist without the supporters. What what is Newcastle United if it's not the fifty two thousand fans who would usually be at St James's Park in a non COVID world? What what is Newcastle United if it's not the final day of the twenty fifteen sixteen season when it's the whole of the, the stadium cheering for Rafa Benitez staying there? What what is it otherwise? What is what is the point of Newcastle United if it's not the fans? So so keep those fans on side, but not just in terms of a, a, a pet, pat on the head. I'm not saying every single decision has to be what you think all of the all of the fans will want because that just isn't possible with with because a supporter base is like society. It's such a broad church. But w- what it has to be is every single decision that is made. Ha- supporters have to be taken into consideration with that. Now, I would like to see the trust involved in that as, as, as an elected representative body of, of 10,000 or so supporters. Hopefully that'll grow. But but just in general, just just really take that into consideration rather than just st- staying so insular because it, the football club is an institution in the city. It is in almost a public body. I know it isn't a public organisation, but in my sense, it, it, it is, in my view, it almost is in terms of the importance of the city. So it is about, really, for me, that, that openness to, to really think about about supporters and put them first in, in terms of communication with us as the media, but even more important, just communication with supporters. Now, I know that, again, was a very roundabout answer, so I apologise for that, but, but yeah. <laughs> no, no. It's all interesting stuff, and I think that's that's all I had to ask Chris. So thanks very much for coming on to the show. It's, uh, it's much appreciated, and fingers crossed you get to have that conversation quite soon with potential new owners. Joined now on the line by Andrew Musgrove, who I'm sure all of you will know as the host of the excellent Everything is Black and White podcast from the Chronicle. Andrew also runs uh, many of the live blogs to do with Newcastle United, in particular a Newcastle United match day. Andrew, how are you getting on, mate? I'm not too bad, thanks. Yourself, Alex? Can't complain. Uh, I'm speaking to you. That's that's brightened my day. <laughs> and, you know, we're having this conversation, and our listeners have heard me talk to the lads before from the Trust. 
about fan communication and why it's important and how it's important. As someone who who works, uh, you know, closely with the club or from the outside looking in, you know, the Chronicle does have a relationship with the club. Um, what kind of relationship uh, since since you've been doing the job you've been doing have you had with the club? Can you tell us what you think the club have done well in their relationship with the Chronicle, and maybe some things you'd like to see uh, done a little bit better? I think communication's key, isn't it? I mean, we've just got to look at what's happening over the last few weeks regarding the season ticket debacle, because in my opinion, it is nothing short of a, a travesty that we're in this position and there has been no communication from the top of the club. Um, in terms of communication with the Cron, you know, I'm not going to um, say it, it's it's bad. I'm by no means, you know, the reporter who is there at the forefront. You know, we have Lee Ryder, we have Mark Douglas and Kieran Kelly. Those are the guys who go to the press conferences every week much more than I do. Um, but, you know, the communication from what I've, I've had experience of and I have gone to many a press conference, it's it's not as bad as it maybe it seems. I know we are, and not just the Chronicle, but a lot of the press are accused of being kind of in the pocket of the club of Mike Ashley. Um, but you've only got to look at, or listen to what uh, our football editor Mark Douglas says quite often that you know that's uh, that could be further from the truth. You know we've never spoken to Mike Ashley because he just doesn't speak to the press other than uh, you know like the Mail Online and what have you. Um, and it's the accusations which I think are a bit uh, left field and, and totally untrue. I think there's a lot of good people who work at the club, um, a lot of good people in the media department who want the best for the club and I think they do the best they can um, and you know we we go looking for answers sometimes we don't get them sometimes we do and I think that's not just the way it is for Newcastle I think that, that that's the way it is for you know a lot of Premier League clubs um, you were part of our online Zoom chat the other day and you heard Kieran Kelly talking about his experiences working as a reporter for Manchester United and from what you know, he says he experienced down there in the northwest. You know, it's it's a relative breeze kind of up here at Newcastle. Yeah, interesting, and it's interesting. You know, that was a really good point I thought Kieran made, and it was interesting to me as a fan to hear that. And I think a lot of what Kieran was saying um, rolls around the manager as well, uh, the current manager and the previous one. Um, that's you know, like. See, Bruce does does seem to enjoy a good relationship with the the local press. How how important is it in terms of communication with between yourselves and the club? You know that that you get on well with the manager because you know Newcastle have had an okay season. I think it's fair to say they're not, not in any danger of relegation trouble. Hasn't been pretty on the eyes at times, and there's been some dross in there, but there's been some highs as well. You know, in, in previous years, when the going gets tough, particularly I'm thinking of the likes of Steve McLaren going, going back a long time ago. I don't know if, if you were involved then, but joking, yeah. How how do you, how do you as a journalist and you and your colleagues is it is it a hard one to kind of tread that line between having a good relation with someone on a personal level, but then also sometimes having to be very critical if things go wrong on the pitch. I'll be honest, I don't. I, I've been to a few press conferences. Um, I've sat in most of them after the game as well, and I'm not sure. Steve Bruce will know me uh, from Adam, but on that point, I do think it's. Im- I think there's an important difference because I'll say, yeah, it's very important to have a good relationship with the manager. And some people listening to this podcast will instantly pick up on that and say, "Oh, well, there you go. You're in the pocket of Steve Bruce." I've, you know, tweeted out 
before that I think Steve Bruce deserves credit, you know, for what he's done this season. And instantly the reactions were at just the North East press trying to kind of cuddle up to Steve Bruce. And I, I don't think that's fair. I think the importance of the relationship is to be able to criticize where it's needed, where it's fair and praise give and give praise where it's it's needed and where it's fair. And I think that's the difference. I think it's not just cut, as cut and dry as saying, yeah, you've got a good relationship with the manager because like I say, people will instantly interpret that in their, their own, and in my opinion, misguided kind of way. I think the Northeast press have had that thrown at them quite a lot. We've, I've just spoken to Luke Edwards there for the Telegraph and sorry to plug our own podcast, but it'll be out later. And we addressed that point about um, the relationship with Steve Bruce and how people interpret it. And it's, I think it's it's a question that no journalist shies away from. You know, like I say, Mark always, Mark Douglas is always up for answering questions on our coverage on, you know, the relationship with the managers. Um, I just think it's important to distinguish the difference from, as some fans will say, being in the pocket of someone and having a good relationship with a with a manager. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's a a really reasonable response. And I think I think the vast majority of people listening to this would would appreciate that. In terms of fan communication, then obviously from a a fan and a trust perspective, I I have a good idea about what I think should happen. But also, like pretty much the main way that the club would actually communicate with its supporters is through. What what I call traditional media, newspapers, um, or, or or the or the Chronicle, and obviously the Chronicle being the not wanting to belittle any other local titles, but being the kind of the, the focal point for Newcastle United news in the city and for the football club. Do you, like do you feel this kind of sense of if the club actually engage with you better? Not as in, not only is it quite naturally better for you, but it's also better for the people that they're supposed to be trying to impress or at least trying to acknowledge in terms of supporters? Do you think that there's a there's a real missed opportunity, the fact that, for example, uh, Lee Charney not sitting down with, with yourself on your podcast or or with, with your editor on a fairly regular basis to take supporter questions? Obviously, I think the Trust should be doing that to represent supporters, but the Chronicle has a massive reach. It, do you think it's a missed opportunity for the club not to recognise that actually you could be a huge benefit to them I, I do. I, I do think, I think, like I say, communication is key to running a successful football club. And I would imagine if the takeover is complete, then we, we will probably see a, a, a massive PR team coming in and maybe ramp up the efforts. But I think at the same time, we, you know, Lee Charney was in the, in the, um, the match day program, I think it was at the start of this season, promising more communication. And he, he had sat down with some of our team, I uh, you know, on on certain occasions, more than um, recently, not as in recent times. I think you can see in the last year, eighteen months, and um, he had done before. And you know, people got to ask the questions, and then there's been little elements of doors being opened. I went and interviewed um, the the gentleman who runs the the stadium and runs the training ground so to speak and I got to speak to him and ask him questions about the plans for the stadium it was after uh the club were criticized for the state of the stadium and you know toilets being broken tiles off falling off the roof you know windows not being clean and, and I got invited in and said well here's the man that runs the operation sit down with him you know and that's a good example of the club saying okay the response to this 
if it was on our website, you know, it probably wouldn't be, wouldn't go down as well as if it is in a local media paper, because instant, I think if anything's part on the website, it's, it's, it's probably looked upon, oh, well, yeah, that's easy for you to put out. Cause you know, whoever's interviewed said person has done it from within the club, but when it's someone from outside of the club, you know, interviewing someone, um, within it, it's, I think it's a bit easier for fans to accept. Um, so we had, you know, that, uh, interview, which I think went down, down well. And it got, it, it was important to ask the questions, which I think were on the, the lips of fans. They wanted to know about the, the plans and about why, you know, the windows hadn't been cleaned and what have you. And, you know, they didn't shy away from, from answering that. And it's, we'd like to see that more, I think. Um, but again, there have, have been examples. I've done plenty with the foundation and, you know, the club have been very uh, generous and, and, and allow me to go and, you know, sit in a, in a community event and, and, and document what happens there with the great work the foundation do. And, you know, the, the, the worked wonders with the food bank as well. Um, and I, I, I do imagine, and from what I understand, a lot of stuff happens away from the public eye that maybe doesn't get put into the public domain just simply because, you know, if you say a certain person has been to the food bank to volunteer and then it's put out in the media that that person's done it, you can understand that the the accusation might be, oh, well, it's just a, it's just a press call. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I think... That has to be noted as well that from what I understand, a lot of things have gone on behind kind of closed doors, which haven't maybe been put out there just simply because it might be detrimental to the positive effect it's actually having. Fair enough. And it's an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting version that I've not really considered before. Um, and, you know, it, that, that is the the problem with stuff like that though, because if, if the club is doing stuff behind closed doors that, that no one can see, then you know, it probably you know magnifies more so on the stuff they're not doing because you know they, they, let's let's be honest, and I'm giving a personal opinion here, but I'm, I'm sure it's one that's shared by a lot of people listening. That Newcastle United, as they exist, are very, 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 very bad at communicating with their supporters, and I, I don't think you know getting things right on the pitch is always the most important thing at any football club. You know, I could give you numerous examples. I'm sure you could have where things are pretty bad off the pitch. But as long as the team's doing okay, people will look past that. I think fan communication isn't isn't something that's hard. I don't think it would take an, all, an enormous amount for them to get right. So it's interesting for you to say that they do sometimes do things and in, in behind the scenes or that they can't publicise that they're doing right. And that's great. And, and there will be lots of supporters who are interested to hear that and think, oh, well, it's nice to hear that positive angle. But then if they weren't so bad at everything else, <laughs> um, it probably wouldn't come across so badly as an, as an overall. But, uh, you know, it's, 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 a fair enough, it's a fair enough comment. And last thing I'd like to, to finish off on, Andrew, is, you know, let's assume this takeover goes ahead. In your ideal world, in your job role, and, and, and maybe, you know, for, for your industry as a whole, what, what would you like to see change? You know, I'm talking total... Fantasy world here. If new owners come in and you in the way to sit down with you and your colleagues and say, right, tell us how you would like our relationship to work. What do you What do you want to see happen with with new owners? So yeah, I just like to emphasize, you know, the point that there's a lot of good people who are there and work at the club already. And I think it all depends on, like you see, the takeover going through, and then I think the narrative will change and the atmosphere around the club will change, and then it's a lot easier to maybe open up them lines of communication. Obviously. There's no getting away from the fact that, you know, you, the, the, the NUSC 
the supporters trust should have had some element of communication over the season tickets. Um, but I think there are people trying to get answers and maybe um, it's just a little bit difficult to, to get them at the moment, given the takeover um, situation. And I just think when the takeover, or if the takeover does happen, things will be a lot easier to communicate with the fans and things will be, the fans will be much more receptive to maybe the charity work, the foundation, the things that don't really matter to some as much as what happens on the pitch and it matter as to who was in charge, etc. I just think it'll be a clean slate for everybody. And I think any bad feeling or any negativity will, will disappear. And then it's a lot easier to, you know, get that happy connection between the communication from the club and the, and to the fans. Nice one. Uh, Andrew, thanks so much for your time. It's much appreciated. Like I said earlier, you can catch Andrew on the Everything is Black and White podcast, uh, talking all things Newcastle United. Uh, thanks for your time, mate. Speak to you soon, hopefully. Cheers, Alex. Bye-bye. Joined now on the on the show by Steve Wraith, who I'm sure needs no introduction, but if he does, he's the MD of Newcastle United Legends. Uh, he's been on the show several times, and he is uh, a former fanzine editor. He's pretty much done it all at Newcastle United, and is one of the, the biggest Newcastle United fans I know. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. You doing okay? Yeah, good, mate. Good, and uh, you know, keep up the good work with uh, with the trust and with true faith. It's, uh, it's still good to, to good to good to read that. And I've been re- reviewing the old copies of True Faith, getting myself back into the. The mind of watching Newcastle United playing football again. Yeah, no, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Despite the criticism, it'll just be nice to to concentrate on the football for a change, won't it? Yeah, hundred percent, mate, hundred percent. So, I mean, in terms of fan communication, um, listeners, uh, Steve has actually worked at the club. Uh, you know, uh, I'll let you talk about it more, Steve. And do you want do you want to tell us a little bit about your role and how that was involved in supporter communication? Yeah, I mean, I was the very first fans liaison officer at Newcastle United. Um, it was quite a long, drawn-out process to begin with. Um, obviously, as a fanzine editor at the time, um, I was writing the uh, the number nine. I was the editor and, and, and writer and chief bottle washer. And um, you know, it was it was basically that that brought me to the attention of the club. With the uh, the Sky Revolution, uh, television became more important within the game, and and you know, fans were asked for their opinion, and, and ultimately. You know, that's what happened with me. Uh, you know, Mark Jensen from the Mag um, and, and myself were, were often called upon by local and national media to give our points of view on on television. And uh, ultimately, for me, um, I was always you know keen to to have my own opinion, not to speak on behalf of the fans. And I was very outspoken against you know the Douglas Hall and, and Freddie Shepherd regime at times. And I think what they realised was that it would be better having me on the inside looking out than on the outside shouting in and they decided that they did need communication with the fans after the big um, scandal when uh, the fake shakes set our previous owners up by uh, you know recording them on tape and hearing them uh, slate the fans saying that all northeast women were dogs that they were making cheap shirts in uh, the Middle East and sending, selling them to Newcastle United fans for overinflated prices and I think they even called our record goal scorer Alan Shearer Mary Poppins if I remember right so all of this was emblazoned across a paper which is now defunct called the News of the World and our club was in uh, the front pages for all the wrong reasons so the club at that point decided that communication was the was the right thing to do and that fans needed 
conduit to do that. So they appointed a guy called Rogan Taylor from Liverpool, um, a very intelligent man, very educated man. And he came up with the idea of a fans liaison committee, which uh, essentially would be uh, democratically voted for by the supporters who were season ticket holders, uh, but that the fans liaison committee, once democratically elected, would then have to uh, speak to a fans liaison officer who was not democratically elected, and that position was offered to me at St James's Park. So I became uh, Newcastle United's very first fans liaison officer in the late 90s going into the, the early noughties. So uh, it was a poison chalice, if I'm perfectly honest. Um, it seemed to really uh, get in people's throats and certain fans' throats um, that I hadn't been democratically elected. So that therefore it made the, the fans liaison committee uh, a farce. Uh, they felt that you know that the fans liaison committee should be meeting with Freddie Shepherd and Douglas Hall and and shouldn't be meeting with Steve Rafe. And there was a lot of animosity towards it, which of course meant that really it was on a hiding to nothing. So the fans got what they wanted in one respect, in the sense that they were going to get some communication. But you know it, it didn't please a lot of those you know supporters who had a lot to say back in those days. So I think it also annoyed them that my, my position as fans liaison officer was a paid position. I was on the payroll. So it meant, you know, I was no better in, in some fans' eyes than, you know, than, than you know, uh, Douglas Hall or, or Freddie Shepherd. You know, it, it meant nothing. It meant nothing to, to them that the fans liaison committee was meeting me. So they did try it. It failed. Um, I left the club um, under a cloud. And essentially, the, the, the fans were back to square one with, with no fans liaison officer until, of course, Mike Ashley decided to resurrect the role um, a, a few years later when he took the club over. Interesting you say that. And, it, it, you know, they get a lot of sticks sometimes, the the, the shepherds and, and halls. But that, you know, we, we've discussed previously, on, previously in this show, Steve, that we've been through the Premier League handbook and looked at the requirements and how every club is is supposed to have a, a supporters liaison official, at least one. Um, and, and obviously you were talking back then, it's, it sounds like, you know, at least for all their flaws, they, they did have a little bit of foresight in, in, in installing that role. I mean, it, it, sound, it sounds a ridiculous story, doesn't it? You know, we've got so little communication from the club these days that back then there were people complaining that there was a paid supporters liaison officer when it's now a Premier League um, requirements to have at least one at the club. So yeah, I think I think sadly, sadly, it was a personal issue with me. I think I'm not going to go into the politics of it. I've you know I've written my book now, Every Boy's Dream, and I, I do discuss this in in that book. And it's um, you know I go into the ins and outs, and uh, you know I haven't made it a slanging match. I've just I've just stated facts, and, and this is this is why you know people didn't like me in that position. I've you know I've, I've grown accustomed to being like marmites. You know some people <laughs> like me and some people hate me. There's no in between with me, and uh, it became a personal issue. And I think that's why I think I'd have been a, a complete unknown who'd been put in the fans liaison officer's job it might have been it might have been a different matter or if it would have been somebody who these other supporters had actually liked then I think maybe that you know they might have been given a little bit more time but you know it, it's history now which it's you know it, we're talking over 20 years ago and it, it's part of the it's part of the history books but but yeah I think you know fair play to Shepherd and Hall in one respect because they did attempt it but then I think it was probably more down to the fact that I was on the outside shouting at them and saying that they were getting things wrong. Um, and they 
basically thought, well, if we pay Steve and get him on the, you know, get him get him involved with the club, then he's not going to be standing outside having a go at us anymore. So it it almost appears, you know, that too good to be true, and it probably was that that was the that was probably the reason they appointed me as as the fans liaison officer, and and the subsequent fans liaison officer. I mean, you know, the guy who's come in now, and you know, who was in the role, Lee Marshall. I mean, he's he's now head of media, but you know, he's still, I think, you know, is 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 still running the fans liaison section to some degree at this moment in time nice guy um, you know not a Newcastle fan from outside the area but a genuinely nice approachable guy but you know has as much power as, as I did when I was at the club and uh, you know I think the difference between me and Lee Marshall is it was probably a more professional baptism for him at St James's Park because when I got the job there they didn't have a desk for us they didn't <laughs> even know I was starting work and I, I, I literally was walking around St James's Park on level 5 for two weeks without a desk or a chair I was, you know, chair surfing at St James's Park. So, so even back then, you know, behind the scenes, it seemed they were completely clueless and didn't know what they were doing. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it's it's comical when you think about it, but it's also quite frightening. And, uh, you know, that a Premier League club back in the you know, 20 years ago, you know, didn't even know somebody was starting work for them. So uh, quite, quite bizarre that I could just walk in and, and be walking around there as a fan. That's it. That is incredible. Um, the, the the thirteen years that we've endured as a support, uh, you've been in, involved with the supporters' trust um, at, at various points. You've been involved with NUFC fans united. I think um, you know how how have you found trying to deal with the club um, both both as a fan and in any of the positions that you hold. You know, MD of Newcastle Legends. You work with a lot of ex players. What how have you found communication and working with Newcastle United in the Ashley era? In the Ashley era, it's been a bit of a mixed bag. Um, to be honest, when he first came in, there wasn't any communication at all. Um, it was very much, you know, Mike Ashley was out there. He was he was a public figure. He was going down the, the big market to Blue Bamboo, buying everyone a drink. He was on the terraces, surrounded, of course, by security staff, but all wearing rec- replica strips. And everything was going along, you know, swimmingly and, and really well until he downed a pint in record time at the old Highbury ground, you know, live on national television. And, and from that moment on, things changed with Mike Ashley. He became public enemy number one for the media. The media obviously were looking for a chink in Mike Ashley's armour. He'd been a recluse for years, and now he was all over the newspapers, and he was Newcastle United's you know, billionaire, and you know we were expecting great things from him. But that one uh, reaction um, by the media changed things forever because... Our fans, or a certain section of our fans, turned on him a little bit because of the shame that he brought on on the club. I do remember speaking out against it myself, you know, because obviously, as I said, you know, you're always asked for an opinion, like you are, Alex. Now, as, as chairman of the trust, you're asked for your opinion, and you pick and choose which which media interviews you do. But I did, I do remember speaking about it and saying, well, you know, he's the owner of the football club. Perhaps you know he should tone it down a bit. He should be wearing a suit in the director's box, not a replica shirt, and he certainly shouldn't be drinking pints. It is a bit embarrassing. But that kind of reaction from us, I think drew him in um, a little bit. He, he retired from the public life, if you like, and it didn't sit comfortably with him to be sitting in the director's box wearing a shirt and tie. And, and suddenly I think he had a bit of a wake-up call and a real a realism that actually I can't behave like a, a football supporter does because I actually own this football club. So we're into this whole... Um, scenario then, which which developed into the next thirteen years. You know, he 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 started to make rash decisions 
obviously, you know, bringing in Kevin Keegan, which I think most of us were over the moon about, but knew that was potential danger in it because if Kevin doesn't get what he wants, he, he you know, he, he will walk out. And, and, and ultimately, there was a few situations which developed. Dennis Wise coming in and yeah. Tony Jimenez and other people. And, and we ended up in a situation, Alex, where, you know, we, we ended up completely at loggerheads with the owner and that was never going to work. So the communication side of things for fans was always going to become an issue then because you had an us and them mentality which had built up and uh, fanzines were starting to attack him online websites and, and you know uh, forums were starting to attack him and uh, they just became this horrendous situation we all knew what happened Cockney Mafia out banner appeared and it became an us and them it became a north-south divide and it just it just meant communication was so difficult so lots of things spawned from that Twitter Twitter is in its infancy but was starting to develop so we, we found that there was various people setting up new accounts to, to drive the owner out, to, to, to oppose, uh, oppose the owner. Then we had, obviously, formations of new groups, like you just mentioned, Newcastle uh, and UFC Fans United. Um, and all of that really just divided the supporters. So we ended up in a position where, you know, we weren't just fighting Mike Ashley, but we were actually fighting ourselves. And when you look back on the 13 years that Mike Ashley's been here, that's been our biggest downfall, that the supporters haven't got on that the supporters have spent more time attacking each other. And that's only benefited one person, and that's Mike Ashley in this whole sorry saga. Couldn't agree more. Uh, you're absolutely spot on. What what, what about looking, looking to the future then, and particularly in your role with Newcastle Legends and the, the links that you have with ex-players? And I'm sure you will, you know, people will know you, you, you do it at the minute. You can maybe give a bit more information, but you do the, the, the daily um, YouTube or Instagram videos often often contain and former players. Do you want to give those a bit of a plug so listeners know where to look for those? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, just really to help people get through the lockdown and to help my sanity a little bit, I just started doing some some Instagram interviews with a lot of my connections. Obviously, I run a company, Newcastle Legends, and uh, I have done for the last four years and, and you know, work with ex-players. You know, I, I put events on, obviously, to, to pay my bills and, and help the lads get an earner, uh, but also to help football clubs, to help uh, charities, etc. We've done so many great events over the years. You know, the biggest one we did was the recent Legends game, Newcastle versus Manchester Select for Alan Shearer's charity, you know, where I handed over a cheque for £54,000 to his foundation. So we've done so many great things. We run the Pavel Cup each year in memory of Pavel and, and, and you know, usually raise between three and £5,000 for the local charities of that game. So we do a lot of work, but I just thought during lockdown, it would be nice to give people something for free. Uh, so I started doing live interviews on Instagram, um, at Steve Wraith's Instagram, and we had Mickey Quinn on, Gavin Peacock, uh, Steve Howie, to name a few, and people love them uh, because you can just come on. It's a, it's a dead easy chat between me and the guys, and you can ask questions on there. So I decided to just, you know, follow in the footsteps of people like yourselves and, uh, and other players, other people like Gallagher Shots, just, you know, stick it onto YouTube because I was getting a lot of people saying, well, Instagram's great, Steve, but I can't get on it. Um, you know, it would be nice to see this. So, you know, I've, I've rejigged my YouTube channel, which I've had up there for many years, um, and uh, we'll just start, you know, doing live broadcasts on there. So it's been great. And I, I haven't just stuck with, with, with football. I've done boxing and I've, I've done other things, uh, but, but mainly football. So, you know, we've 
managed to have a, a load of guests on there. So if you get onto Steve Ray's YouTube channel, you, you'll be able to find things on there. But getting back to the legends, obviously with, um, you know, with respect to, you know, the, the potential takeover, which is, you know, in the offing and hopefully will be concluded soon, is I'd love to be able to in, infiltrate the club with the legends and, and, and start building them back into the club and that was the whole idea was setting up Newcastle Legends as a company because I, I'd had previous companies you know uh, you know putting events on race promotions and uh, you know Players Inc had, had, had both both worked really well but you know I, I was struggling really for a, a brand name that was going to work and, and, and promote you know promote exactly what I did and I think that's where Newcastle Legends came from because you know I looked at it and stripped it bare and thought well predominantly I do talk in with the ex-Newcastle players so I thought going for Newcastle Legends would would be beneficial moving forward if the club ever was ever sold because I could go to the new owners and say look you know, I look after the Newcastle legends. I've got a lot of them on my books who, who can come and do a lot of good work at the football club. They're ready and willing to do it. So so that's it. So, I mean, there's been conversations that I've had with, with the ex-players and I know a lot of them would love to get involved and, you know, in, in some capacity if, if the takeover goes through. So so that's what I'm hoping to do. And, uh, you know, I've done a couple of uh, podcasts and, and stuff over the last few weeks and obviously did the, you know, the, the really impressive town uh, town hall chat with uh, Chi and Wu and, and the city council, obviously, the, the trust were involved in that. And again, I just, you know, I, I emphasised on there that that's what I would like to do. It would be, it would be great. And I think that the potential takeover is is something which we're all very excited about. And um, you know, it, 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 it just feels like the rebirth of, of Newcastle United, which which is very exciting. I totally agree, and, and I think it's a really interesting idea about integrating the ex-players in the club I mean you don't have to look that far to see where it works really well you look at Liverpool and Everton you can't you can't move around parts of Goodison and Anfield so I hear in corporate areas well bumping into one of those players or events happening stuff like that and then even further afield at, at, at the great clubs of Europe um, all of them Barcelona Bayern Munich Real Madrid have ex-players throughout the club kind of keeping things right I'd imagine is that the kind of thing you're hoping for? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, look, you know, you go to places like Manchester City, as you said, and the corporate facilities are absolutely fantastic. But you have, you know, you you know, they go on the ground tour. You, you get a chance to meet an ex legend, and you know, some of them are taking you on the ground tours. You go to, you go into the corporate facilities, and the guys are there at the, at the table with you. But not just that, you you go into like the stands, and at half time. And in some places at full time, um, you know, there's a talking, a free talking going on with the next player who's maybe doing a, a full time analysis or, you know, they're doing pre match and half time analysis. So it's very important, I think, just to have that because, you know, at the end of the day, the, the ex players should be looked after by the football club. There's, you know, especially if they've given a great deal of service to the club and helped out. And I think these, these kind of things help spread the brand. And the bigger the name, of course, you know, you could end up with ambassadors. We see it with Manchester. United and Liverpool in particular who have the Legends teams within the structure of the club and they go out and tour you know to places like Asia and you know Australia etc to spread the word and also to promote the brand so so for me I think that's important I think that um the, the, the channel as well, the Newcastle United channel, could be so much improved. And again, that's something that the legends could help with. Um, you know, it's something which, you know, if you go on the sky, you know, Liverpool and Manchester United are actually on there. You can subscribe to their channels. That's something that Newcastle United should be doing. And, you know, the, the channel is, is so underused. It's, it's improved massively over the last 18 months. And 
you've got to give credit to them during lockdown, especially when once they've returned from furlough, that they started to put the old games back on again and give them access to to the fans on YouTube. It's given it's given us all a focus and something something to look forward to on a Saturday afternoon. But that kind of thing should be done, you know, it should be done via via the correct channels and and, and eventually onto Sky because Newcastle United's a big enough club for that. So you imagine the situation where you have a weekly chat show where. Malcolm McDonald's on there or, or Lee Clark's on there or Steve Howie's on there you know all these people are, are great at talking about Newcastle United and um, they would be fantastic to have on on some kind of weekly show and you know it would help build the brand and you know you, you've also yes there's 52,000 people go to St James's Park on a regular basis but there's, just, there's millions of people around the world who support the club and there'll be millions more with this takeover and uh, those people need to be looked after those people need to be catered for and you know you've got a captive market there because those people who watch that television channel um you know if you're selling some merchandise or you're selling a shirt or you're selling whatever you know surely those people are going to buy stuff off the channel so it's it's common it's common sense it's business sense but you use the legends in that in that capacity as well it's it's uh, you know it'll it'll certainly help the business and help spread the word and make newcastle a, a big big club Brilliant, Steve. Thanks for your time. Uh, you mentioned there you had a book out before. When When's that hitting shelves? Yeah, the uh, book Every Boy's Dream is by War Cry Publishing. Uh, Jamie Boyle has, has written the book. I've, uh, I've, I've helped edit the book down as well. And um, yeah, it's out on Kindle now, four ninety five, okay. um, available on Amazon. Um, and the hard copy comes out on the 1st of July, paperback, and it'll be available obviously in the back page. You'll be able to get it from the back page in Newcastle the Metro Centre. Obviously, Waterstones, WH Smiths and on, and on Amazon but uh, I'd like people to read it because obviously there's people who've got a lot of misconceptions about me uh, people who haven't met us just think they know us and, and, and have an opinion on us and uh, I'd like people to read the book you know even if they borrow it off somebody just, just to see that I'm uh, you know not the person I'm painted out to be and it, it writes a lot of wrongs certainly about things like the infamous funeral march um, you know where a lot of people think I was to blame for that and it was me who organised it well you know there's, there's, there's the, the truth about that particular Stories in there. Brilliant. I look forward to reading it myself. Thanks for your time. Cheers, man. Whether you're a world class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well being and proper recovery for top notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.